Hello, welcome back. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your uncontrollable chimpanzee rage speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, I've read The Clueiston Test by Kate Wilhelm, which is a novel originally published back in 1976. And Kate Wilhelm was an extremely significant figure in the development of science fiction in the United States, but I think that she's often overlooked by readers now. Wilhelm was one of the founders of the Clarion Workshop, that uh, six-week intensive speculative fiction writing course that has really helped a lot of journeyman writers up their game, uh, and which is now a, a real vaunted institution of the of the genre. And Gene Wolfe, who, of course, is important, very important to this podcasting network, mentions Kate Wilhelm in his masterpiece novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Uh, he places her short story collection, The Mile Long Spaceship, in the library in Port Mimizan in one of my absolute favorite scenes in all of literature. Wilhelm also was just amazingly prolific, and she wrote a lot outside of speculative fiction, but her major sci-fi novel was Where Late the Sweet Birds Sang, which won the Hugo in 1977, and that is an excellent and just beautiful post-apocalyptic story that is also about cloning. In fact, it's largely about cloning. And until now, until this point, this had been the only Wilhelm novel that I'd read, but even though that was 20 years ago when I was in the army... I still remember that book vividly, and I've been wanting to revisit it. Revisiting books, of course, right, is something of the impetus of this show to begin with, and so I had to put it on the ATOS list, but when I was on vacation just last week, I visited a used bookshop, as one does in a new city, and I found an SF Gateway omnibus book with two Kate Wilhelm novels and one of her short story collections, all in one volume. Now, obviously, I had to have that. I just love these SF Gateway books, and I will almost always grab one if I see it. And so, we're doing the Clueiston test instead of Where Late the Sweet Birds Sang. And I think on that note, without any more preamble, we can get into it. So, let's talk about the Clueiston test. The Clueiston Test is a, a medical sci-fi story. This is a, a subgenre that I really quite enjoy, so we'll get some more of this before too long. Uh, Connie Willis's novel Passages is probably my favorite, but I love me some Greg Bear, too, and, and even some Michael Crichton. So this book is about scientists at a pharmaceutical company who are working on a way to suppress pain in humans, to just suppress it as a, as a pain response. The project has just received government approval to move from testing their drug on chimpanzees to testing it on humans, but just as this happens, some problems crop up. One of the chimps attacks her regular caretaker and nearly kills him, while another chimp even attacks her own baby. And these incidents, and, and also several others, prompt an investigation. The scientists eventually discover that the drug they've developed is highly correlated with an increase in violence among a, a significant minority of the chimpanzee test subjects. Now, this is really as far as this goes. This is not 28 days later. This condition isn't going to spread to humans and turn a bunch of us into rage zombies or, or anything like that. This part of the story is actually quite simple. Scientists discover that something isn't right with the drug they're developing, and they want to check it out. But there is tension in this book, and that tension, the, the conflict, comes in two forms. 
The first is that despite the indications that something might be wrong with the drug, the suits in the company, right? That is to say, the non-scientist managers, the business people, they want to proceed with human testing anyway, even though the scientists, of course, are all horrified by this. And uh, much of the drama of the book involves the scientists trying to convince the suits to wait, that they have a moral and ethical responsibility to not test this on humans yet. And here, Wilhelm really emphasizes the nature of this conflict by having the scientists talk about whether something is moral or ethical, while the manager is only concerned with what is legal. What's more, on, on, on top of this, the, the human test subjects aren't true volunteers who will be giving their informed consent. They're prisoners who are being donated by the state government to undergo several years of testing and observation. And being a prisoner and having the issue of your consent ignored is one of the important elements in this story, and I think that can lead us to the real plot of the book. So far, I haven't even mentioned the name of a single character, but now I want to talk about the two protagonists and their personal story, which is just really what the book is about. These are the married couple, Anne Cluiston and Clark Simons. They're the lead scientists on this project, but Anne is the one who had the insight that makes the project possible at all. And they're young, not really that long out of grad school. So this project is a huge deal to them, both personally and professionally. When the novel opens, though, Anne is not able to actively participate in her own project at this very crucial stage because she's at home recovering from a horrible car accident that she and Clark were in a few months ago. And so we get this novel through both points of view, from Clark, who is at work and knows all the details of the problem and, and so on, and from Anne, who is stuck at home and is struggling internally, right? Anne is reevaluating her life and her relationships and what matters to her. And I'm going to take this up more in the, the next segment. So here I'll just say that Anne blames Clark for the accident. She doesn't do this consciously, but really it's a subconscious thing. And this means that she no longer trusts him and, and she's no longer able to share an intimate connection with him. And all of this culminates in Clark raping Anne. And there's going to be more on this too in the next segment. And of course, their marriage falls apart because of this. Now, from Clark's perspective, there is something wrong with Anne. Clark has trouble understanding why Anne won't willingly have sex with him now that her doctor has cleared her for it, at least physically anyway. So from his perspective, he was trying to forcibly repair their sexual intimacy as a way of helping Anne. And at this point, our, our medical plot returns and becomes entwined with the personal story here of Anne and Clark dealing with this forced sex, this this rape. Some of the drug that they're testing is unaccounted for, and Clark knows that they had some of it at home, but now it's gone. Anne insists that she threw it away because she was concerned about how long it had been sitting around unused, but Clark suspects that she took it because Anne was in a lot of pain following the car accident, and he recalls now how suddenly she actually seemed to stop feeling that pain. And then also, uh, for evidence, there is an incident with a kitten. Anne's uncle has been helping out with her home care, and he brings her a kitten to keep her company. And of course, also, and maybe more importantly, to give her something to be responsible for, because he also is concerned that Anne is withdrawing from the world during her recovery, her very long convalescence. Now, 
The kitten dies, and it's pretty brutal and pretty graphic. The kitten is killed in an act of violence, though we as readers are, are never actually quite certain how the kitten is killed, because this is all narrated from Anne's perspective, and she is having in this moment, and, and she has been having uh, for the most of the, the novel, some dementia of, of, a, of a sort. And so our understanding is really as confused as Anne's in this moment. But we do know that the, the kitten scratches her very hard. And later, the kitten is in their living room, and it is dead from wounds that it has sustained. Anne has no memory of how this happened, and she surmises that the kitten was attacked outside by, you know, another cat or something like that, and then crawled in through an open window to die in her living room. But Anne herself even doubts this story, and she begins to worry that she herself killed the kitten and just doesn't remember it. And we as well, and also Clark, begin to have this same worry. If Anne did kill this kitten, then this behavior, this action, this mirrors the behavior of the chimpanzees in the lab. I'll, I'll remind you that one of the chimpanzees attacked her own baby, right? And this is basically the same thing that Anne has done here, if indeed she is the agent of this violence, of this death. And there are other of Anne's behaviors that mirror the, the rage chimpanzees as well, including the way that she sometimes looks at Clark as if she's thinking about killing him. Because of this, and also because of Clark's own insecurities, Clark becomes convinced that Anne did indeed take their experimental drug and is becoming psychotic from it. And even Anne begins to wonder if she took the drug and simply doesn't remember it. And much of the drama here, much of the drama of the, the book at the end, hinges on us, the, the readers, wondering whether she did or not, and, and wondering if Clark is actually going to be in danger, right? Is Anne actually going to attack Clark the way that the chimpanzees have been attacking their uh, caretakers and their handlers? Because that's who Clark has become for her, also kind of an imprisoner in this sense. And I have to say, Wilhelm writes all of this with excellent suspense, so we really do worry and wonder if this is going to happen. All of this is going on while the scientists, including Anne, who's been brought up to speed, all of the scientists are trying to get the company to give them more time before moving on to the human trials. The company, of course, eventually finds out that Anne may have taken the drug, and this is a big deal for them. So they try to force her to become a subject in her own experiment, and the, the company suits even figure out a, a legal way to have her committed to a mental hospital and subjected to the company's observation. Of course, Anne doesn't want this, right? Nobody would want this. And she is really insistent now that she did not take the drug and shouldn't be subjected to this. And Clark is also, we should say, doing everything that he can to keep Anne from being committed to because he does love his wife, despite the evidence of some of his choices and actions. And in the end, no one quite gets their way here. And Anne makes a, a deal with the company that, that wraps all of this up. She commits herself to a mental hospital on her own terms. Uh, it's her own hospital that she's picked out as well. And she gets the company to agree to postpone human trials until she herself can do more research. On top of this, going into the hospital gives Anne a separation from Clark, which is something that she has decided she wants, and ultimately this is going to let her divorce him and go her own way. And in the end, we actually discover that Anne has cleverly manipulated some of these events to facilitate her separation and divorce from Clark, that she decided that she had not taken the, the drug and just didn't remember it, but continued to play up 
some of the behavior that would lead others to think that maybe she had so that she could make this happen. And we, the readers, are left marveling at the lengths that she's had to go to in order to get away from him, Uh, marveling that she has basically had to pretend that she's crazy in order to escape her husband. And that's the plot of the Clueston test. So with that done, I think let's move into our our themes. And, And there's a lot to talk about here. So let's just start with the big theme. Really, this is the thematic elephant in the room, and that is the place of women in society. Although the business with the experimental drug is is really interesting, and it allows Wilhelm to pose some fascinating sci-fi questions, and we'll get to one of those next, ultimately, this is a story about a woman who feels trapped and, and abused and has to feign madness in order to escape her husband, who has raped her, and also her employer, who is going to harm other people with her work. The word rape is all over this book, and it shows up right in the first chapter, in the very first scene where we meet Ann and Clark. This is a scene that shows them quite happy in their marriage. It's a breakfast scene as Clark is getting ready to go to work, and they're talking about Ann's medical care. And then Clark says this, and I'll just read the whole paragraph here. So, so here's what Wilhelm writes. Clark laughed and sat on the side of the bed with his cup in his hand and smoothed her hair back with the other hand. You don't know how to scowl and you don't look mad and you aren't anyone's stereotypical genius. What you look like is a damn sexy blonde in a pretty frilly thing and if I don't rape you outright in the next few weeks, I'll be a candidate for sainthood. Using the word rape in this jokey way made me very uncomfortable, but it's clear in the context of the scene that Clark is flirting. And indeed, the next few paragraphs are actually about how this line has made Anne think about their sex life before the accident and how awesome it was and how attracted she is to him and how much she wishes that she could have intimacy with him again, how much she wishes that she wanted to to want that, I guess is the best way to put it. So, of course, I felt like I needed to get over my own discomfort and accept that Wilhelm meant for this to be cute and flirty, to be to be rom com really, right? And to remember that this book was written 40 years ago, and the way that we use language and our mores for talking about consent and so on uh, have changed. But in the end, Clark does actually rape Anne. He, he forces himself on her one evening, and he refuses to stop even when she tells him to. And this rape, this assault, this ends their marriage. Anne determines to leave Clark despite his attempts to apologize, despite his attempts to justify his actions. And it is possible to sympathize with Clark here. And I expect that for an audience reading this book 40 years ago, Clark came off as much more sympathetic than he does now. And and I actually think that Wilhelm wants us to see Clark as a man who genuinely loves his wife and feels remorse for what he's done, but also is confused about Anne's response. And there are several more things to say here, but I'll start with the the confusion. Clark just cannot empathize with Anne. He never once thinks about what it would be like to be forced to have sex against his will. For him, this is all just a misunderstanding. He doesn't realize that Anne doesn't feel safe around him anymore, that he has violated their trust. For Clark, they may as well be fighting about the fact that he forgot her birthday or something trivial like that. And Wilhelm even addresses the the question of marital rape, or or spousal rape, we might call it, which was an important part of the public discourse in the mid-70s and and up into the, the 1990s, up until I was in high school. Wilhelm has characters asking 
if it's even possible for a husband to rape his wife, and and even the most sympathetic male character in in the book, someone uh, who works at the company, believes that it is possible, but only under certain circumstances. And he's not sure if these circumstances count, right? He's not sure if what Clark did was rape Anne. Uh, All of us now here in the 21st century are sure that he did, of course. And Wilhelm puts all of this to the fore. It is all front and center in the book. And I, I really think much of the point of the book is to show us what this is like. And we get several pages of Anne reevaluating her marriage and their sex life now that she knows what Clark is capable of. And Anne understands now that although she has spent most of her life feeling more free than most American women ever get to feel, all of that has been an illusion. The, the freedoms that she has felt have been a gift to her from Clark, from her husband. She was free to take charge during sex, to suggest things that she'd like to do, but only to the extent that Clark approved. On the other hand, Clark just did whatever he wanted, and that includes this rape. And so it's clear that they were never actually equal partners in their sex life, even though this is something that Anne thought was true. And Anne feels this way too about her job. Anne is a genius, a genuine genius, and even just still in her 20s, she has made an awesome discovery, and she's not done, right? She's going to do amazing things in science for the next 40, 50 years of her life. And she feels like she's gained the respect of her male bosses. And of course, she is in charge of the project. It bears her name. But that too all turns out to be an illusion. Everything that she thinks she has in both her professional and personal lives is something that, in fact, as she comes to realize, she is merely borrowing from men who can and and who will take it back when it suits them. This is a frustrating revelation, and it is really the core of the book. But it all has a happy ending, actually, I guess. Anne is able to get away from Clark, and she's able to retake control over her intellectual property. And and here, in the resolution of this, Wilhelm flips a, a literary trope on its head. And it is just marvelous the way that Wilhelm does this. If you have read any work of Gothic fiction, then you're familiar with the trope of putting women in mental hospitals, even when such a thing is not necessary, or, you know, just hiding them upstairs uh, in your mansion while you hook up with your kid's nanny. Uh, it's, you know, a way to hide women from the, the world, uh, especially women who are asking for things like, you know, control over their bodies and their livelihoods. Uh, this is something we've encountered on Elder Sign quite a bit when we look at stories about madness. And, and here I'm thinking of Robert Block's story, Lucy Comes to Stay. But also, this is what the yellow wallpaper is about. And indeed, that might be the masterpiece of gothic fiction that takes this theme up. But here in this novel, in The Cluiston Test, Wilhelm inverts this. Everyone around Anne is wondering if she is mentally sound. And they even get her to doubt herself for a little while. And they want to commit her to a mental hospital. But in the end, Anne commits herself. And by doing so, she gets away from Clark. So instead of the mental hospital serving as a place to exile inconvenient women, here in this book, it's actually a refuge for Anne. It's a kind of castle that can keep her husband's demands away from her and which gives her control over her research again. And this is just a marvelous move on Wilhelm's part. Now, uh, there's a lot more that could be said about this theme. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Anne's mother or the lesbian psychiatrist character. So I really hope you'll come to the forum to continue this part of the, the conversation with me. I want to turn now to looking at uh, the more abstract theme that Wilhelm addresses here, and and, and that's the theological problem of pain. Uh, this is an aspect of the, the larger problem of evil, or uh, theodicy, it's called. And this is a, a real problem in Western monotheism, to say Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. 
because these religions believe in a creator God who is morally good and loving and is also omnipotent. Yet, despite that, despite the all-loving and the all-powerfulness of God, this creator God, horrible, awful things happen to people all the time. So why would a loving, all-powerful creator God let us suffer when he could stop that? I suspect that most of us have asked this question at one time or another, and and much of Abrahamic theology is devoted to solving this problem. C.S. Lewis, whom we will get to eventually here on ATAS, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book about this called The Problem of Pain, and it is a, a particular interest also of, of Gene Wolfe's, who has written an entire series of books about a, a torturer who may also be something of a Christ figure. Now here in this book, Wilhelm is not trying to solve the, the problem, and, and we don't get very much of our characters talking about pain from a, a philosophical or a, a theological perspective. It's really only just one character who says that putting an end to needless pain has been the dream of mankind since the beginning of time. But one approach to the problem of pain is to point out that pain is useful to us as living beings, right? Physical pain lets us know that our body is being damaged and that we should uh, do something about it. And we could just think about you having a casual conversation with your partner in the kitchen and you lean back on the stove, which is on and is burning you. And without the pain, you would not know it and you would be damaged by it. So in this sense, pain is useful. Historically, too, some theologians have made the more contentious claim that psychological pain, uh, emotional suffering, we could say, that, that, that psychological pain or emotional suffering allows us to develop into moral agents, right? That without pain and suffering, we wouldn't really have free will because all of our choices would, would always have been easy. And this is perhaps something that we see here in the Cluiston test. As the chimpanzees lose their ability to feel pain, some of them become psychopathic, right? They try to murder their caretakers and even their own children, their own babies. The chimps seemingly can't feel pain from those actions anymore, right? They don't feel guilt or remorse because of this treatment they've received. And they can't empathize with others. Uh, they have no way then to, to know that their actions will cause pain to the, the people that they're doing them to. And here I think we can even circle back to thinking about Clark. Clark's fundamental flaw is that even though he loves Anne to the best of his understanding, he never empathizes with her. He is lacking in empathy, and therefore he behaves immorally. He behaves just repulsively. And Clark is not redeemed in this book. He does not learn from his behavior. He continues not to understand Anne's divergent experience of his choices, of his, his actions, right, of his rape of her. Now, I don't know how much Wilhelm intended for us to make that connection between Clark's lack of empathy and this problem of pain, but this is something that really jumped out to me. And so again, this is something I would look forward to talking about on the forum. So this is quite a heavy book. It deals primarily with important social questions of the 1970s, namely women's rights and women's access to control over their bodies and control over their own livelihoods and the, the right to divorce. And this is one of the things that I think science fiction is for, right? To, to comment on our society, to, to hold up a mirror for ourselves. And, and Wilhelm does a wonderful job with this, just a, a fantastic job of this here in the Cluiston test. And I think that's the biggest strength of the book. And, and I can only imagine what it would have been like to, to have read this in the mid seventies when it first came out. When a husband couldn't legally rape his wife, when a, a wife was obligated to have sex with her husband whenever he wanted, and he could not be punished for doing violence to her in order to get sex. 
The other strength of the book is Wilhelm's ability to, to build up suspense. Very slowly, we as readers begin to realize that what appears to be a problem of merely professional interest for these scientists is potentially much, much larger than that if Anne really has taken the drug. And of course, when Wilhelm does this, she's not merely giving us a, you know, a gripping yard, right? She is drawing our attention to the parallels between the research chimpanzees held in captivity and the way that Anne feels about her marriage as a type of captivity as well. So that's all masterfully done. The Cluiston Test is a very short book, and, and maybe that's part of the enjoyment of it as well. It is a tightly focused story that could be read really in a, a single Saturday afternoon. But this is actually where I feel the book has some weaknesses. Because the book is so short, Wilhelm raises some themes and then drops them without doing very much with them. The problem of pain is one of them, and I think this is the one that I would have liked more about. And I especially would have liked more about the negative effects of the drug, but in the end, I'll say I really enjoyed this book, and while I would definitely tell people to read Where Late the Sweet Birds Sang over this one, I am glad to have read it. I am glad to have accidentally, happily discovered it in a used bookshop while I was taking a bit of a vacation here at the end of the semester. Well, that brings my review to a close. It's a short one this month, and perhaps mercifully so after the double-length episode on A Song for Our Bone last month. But I hope you'll you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and also the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on here. But of course, as always, especially on what I've left out. But for now, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. I am very excited about what we're going to be reading next time, because it is our very first comic book. It's going to be volume one of the series Powers, written by Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, that volume is called Who Killed Retro Girl? Uh, and this one was chosen by our Patreon supporters as well, so I'm doubly excited about it on that count. But until then, until next month, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.